Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks, an audio travel guide aimed to inspire you and your family to visit America's national parks and help you get the most out of your park experience. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 19.8. This is the eighth episode in our series on Yosemite National Park. In this episode, Brian and I speak with two guests about the granite walls and cliffs famous to Yosemite. First, Brian speaks with park ranger and geologist Greg Stock, talking about his role to keep the park and people safe from rockfalls. Then I speak with Dave Bengston, the director of Yosemite's Mountaineering School, about its world-class rock climbing for people of all experience levels, from beginners to the most advanced climbers. People travel from all over the country and the world to go rock climbing at Yosemite National Park. If this is your first time tuning in, go back and listen to the other episodes in this Yosemite series, including our trip report, nature, history, and planning tips and recommendations for visiting. You may also check out our archive for other parks, including Crater Lake, Everglades, Grand Canyon, Great Smoky Mountains, Olympic, Saguaro, Shenandoah, Yellowstone, Yosemite, Zion, and more. I enjoy reading listener comments. I'd like to read one I just received. Here goes. Dear Danielle, I just have to tell you how much I enjoyed the podcast on Saguaro National Park when I was road tripping. So incredible to hear the background stories before going to visit. They just perked me up for things to look for. And even those things I couldn't see, it was great to get a better understanding of the park's wildlife, saguaros, seasons, and indigenous peoples. The podcast goes beyond the where to go and what to do. It was like having a ranger in my car with me. I just love that last line. Reading this just makes my day. Thank you so much. So if you want to share your comments, feedback, stories, tips, or recommendations with us, you can send us a message on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or send us an email at hello at everybody'snps.com. You can also share with us what you want to hear on future episodes. And before we get to the conversation, one more thing. I want to say a special thank you to all of our patrons via Patreon. I am honored that you choose to support this endeavor and find it valuable. If you would like to make a contribution that will help us produce more great content, visit our website, everybody'snationalparks.com, and click on support. Thank you to all of our patrons and listeners. Now, let's get to the conversation. We're here with park ranger Greg Stock, and he is the very first park geologist at Yosemite National Park. And we're going to have a great conversation on rock falls, Greg's job, the necessity of having a geologist at Yosemite National Park. But the first thing I want to say right off the bat is, Greg, I'm on to you. I uh, just quick background in college a long time ago. I took a few semesters of geology, and it was one of my favorite courses And instead of labs, our professor, and I still remember him, uh, Richard Tolo, would take us out into the field into West Virginia. And on one of these field trips, we were taking a break, this great vista in the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, I turned to my professor and I said, you know, Professor Tolo, it just occurred to me, did you become a geologist so you had an excuse to be outdoors all the time in some of the more spectacular, beautiful places in America? And I remember clearly he said, Brian, that's every geologist you now have our secret. So I, I was looking at your background. I have a feeling you may be the same motivation. Guilty as charged. <laughs> yeah. So let's start there. First, um, 
why a park geologist? What necessitated the National Park Service for bringing you on board as a trained scientist and as a geologist to study the park? I think it's a couple things. As you mentioned, I am the first ever park geologist at Yosemite, and people often ask how it is that the Park Service managed to go that long in a such a geological park like Yosemite without one. And I think maybe part of it stemmed from the notion that geology was relatively static and there wasn't anything changing or threatening and therefore no subject matter expert needed. But I think views gradually changed on that. At the same time that, that here in Yosemite, the Park Service was sort of building up a group of scientific experts in natural and cultural resources. And then I think really the big thing that shifted were a series of large and even fatal rockfalls that occurred in the 1990s, mid to late 1990s, and then continuing into the early 2000s, where it just became very apparent that rockfalls were a common natural occurrence, that they posed significant hazard and risk to park visitors and park employees and residents. And I think that was probably the most compelling part of the decision to get a staff geologist. So I do want to talk about the rock falls, but I thought maybe we would start, well, you know, at the beginning. And we've had these conversations with your sister parks, in particular Yellowstone and Grand Canyon. So could you give us a sense of the geological time? What formed Yosemite? What formed the valley? What formed the high country? What were we looking at? What were the geological forces in play that, you know, brought us to the Yosemite Park that we have today? You know, when I talk about geology, I start with a very simple phrase that I think captures the essence of geology in Yosemite, and that is glaciers on granite. That's really the essence right there. The bedrock of Yosemite National Park is granite. It's about anywhere from 80 million to 120 million years old. It was forged underneath volcanoes, and all of that material was eroded away to expose the granite on the surface. and because the granite cooled for thousands of years underneath these volcanoes at great depths, the granite is very hard. There was lots of time to build large interlocking crystals, and so the resulting bedrock here is extremely hard, and we use the term massive, meaning it's not very fractured. So that really hard bedrock allows iconic formations like El Capitan and Half Dome, you know, these 3,000-foot-tall cliff faces that are even slightly overhanging, there aren't a lot of places in the world where you see cliffs like that. Um, most of the cliffs you do see like that are made of granite, the same rock here. So that's the first part of it, right? Really strong, really competent, really beautiful granite bedrock. Then the other part is the fact that bedrock was sculpted by glaciers over millions of years, and that steepened up the walls of Yosemite Valley. It sharpened up certain spires and peaks like Cathedral Peak. And it also smooths the bedrock in places like Lembert Dome or Pothole Dome, where you have beautifully polished, gleaming granite from the, the passage of glaciers. So does the Merced have any impact in terms of erosion or truly the Merced is the last vestigial remnants of whatever glacier was plowing through the valley? Uh, the Merced River actually is accomplishing some geologic work, but not very much. It's a very low gradient river as it flows through Yosemite Valley, so it does not move a whole lot of sediment. I think in terms of erosional processes, rockfalls are by far the dominant process acting in Yosemite now. 
Right. And so when we see something like Half Dome, that's not a function of uplift. That's a truly a function of the glacier just going through and polishing up the side of Half Dome and then leaving what we see now. Yeah, that's generally right. You know, as is often the case in geology, it's not always a, a one simple story. I kind of wish the story of Half Dome were a little simpler because it would be easier to explain to visitors. But that iconic shape of Half Dome is the result of a lot of different processes, actually. So the top of it is smoothed and rounded because of a process called exfoliation, where granite surfaces will break along these curving fractures, and then those sheets of rock that are detached will slide away and leave another surface underneath. So it's a bit like an onion skin sort of thing. As you peel off the skin layers of the onion, there's another one underneath. So that process rounded the top. Glacial erosion on both sides deepened up the faces of Half Dome. And then in particular, the northwest face, the really sheer vertical face, has been affected by rockfalls over you know, tens and hundreds of thousands of years. And those rockfalls have also helped to make the face more planar and steeper through time. So it's really a combination of fracturing, glacial erosion, and rockfalls that all contribute to that shape. So of course, glacial erosion happens in geological time, but these rockfalls could happen right now and could be pretty quickly, which is obviously the danger and, and why you're doing the work that you're doing. What existed prior to your having this job? Was it just a reaction to whatever rockfalls happened, or was there any preventative measures taken? Mostly, it was reacting to rockfalls, you know, right after they occurred, which often means, you know, a big emergency response, evacuations, um, kind of chaotic. Before I got here, the U.S. Geological Survey had done a number of actually really good studies of rockfalls in the park. But there was nothing, I guess you could say holistic, nothing uh, that looked at the entire valley and tried to actually quantify, put numbers to the rockfall hazard and risk. But I definitely was not starting from scratch. There was a good bit of information existing on rockfalls. But yeah, I think the big emphasis for me has been trying to help the park move from a reactive type of response to rockfalls to something a little more proactive. So in being proactive, maybe we should just uh, pause and ask a real basic question. What causes rockfalls? Hmm. Well, a number of things cause rockfalls. And actually, I should be a little more specific and say that we tend to think of the causes of rockfall um, being those things that lead to a piece of rock becoming unstable. So that could be, for example, centuries of water getting in behind cracks and freezing and expanding and the block ratcheting out ever so slightly, or centuries of temperature change that causes the rock to expand and contract, and centuries of water running behind there and breaking some of the chemical bonds which deteriorate the rock and allow it to become less stable. So all of those things are progressively destabilizing the rock. And then we think of a rockfall trigger as being the final force that causes the rock to fall off the cliff at that moment. And a, a very simple example of that would be an earthquake. Strong ground shaking, the cliff moves back and forth, the rock falls down, right? And those things are basically happening at exact the same moment. A more subtle example might be a big rainstorm 
that elevates uh, water pressure in cracks behind these rocks. And maybe a day or two after the rain stops, the rocks will finally pop off. And then, you know, a very kind of mysterious example would be a, a rockfall that occurs on a beautiful sunny day with mild temperatures and no, no water, no earthquakes. It's hard to identify a trigger in that situation, but we actually have quite a few rockfalls that occur in those settings. So rockfalls can happen for a bunch of different reasons, and we have rockfalls all year round. There's no strong rockfall season in Yosemite because so many different things can trigger those rockfalls. Ah, that was my next question. If it happens more in the spring, once you get a thaw, or if it happens when you have a freeze and the ice expands a rock, but it sounds like the park is just a dynamic place and you have to be on guard. In fact, one thing that really drove it home for us in doing some research on you for this conversation, we saw an interview you gave in Earth Magazine. You talked about a rockfall in Curry Village where we have just stayed and that you had just removed a cabin and had that cabin uh, been there, I guess a tent cabin, it would have been wrecked. And obviously you can just draw the inference that someone would have been in that cabin, they would have been in a bad way. So on one hand, gratifying that you were able to make that call. Secondhand, a little bit scary. So in generally speaking, in the valley or where the front country campsites are, mm-hmm. generally speaking, one can have comfort that you're pretty much safe from rock falls now? I think so. Yeah. You know, I we can't ever guarantee complete safety because our rockfall hazard assessment was sort of based on the threat posed by a reasonable range of expected rockfalls. So for example, you know, most urban areas that are in areas of earthquake hazards will try to mitigate the hazards, say design buildings appropriately for a particular size earthquake, maybe a magnitude 7.5, because that's the most likely large earthquake that would happen on that fault. That doesn't exclude the remote possibility of, say, a magnitude 8 or even something larger, but it's not a likely situation. And the efforts needed to mitigate an earthquake of that size are just astronomically larger. So we kind of have the same approach in Yosemite. The study that we finished up in 2012 and was published by the USGS in 2014 assumes hazard resulting from a reasonable range of rockfalls up to, you know, rockfalls larger than we've even seen historically. And based on that range of reasonable rockfalls, I feel like you're reasonably safe, right? Say if you uh, book a cabin in Curry Village or you stay in a camp site at Camp 4, the Park Service has taken a lot of steps to try to remove the areas of highest risk from rockfalls. And in fact, we've reduced that risk by 95% for structures within the valley. So I think you can sleep safely, but we do remind people that rockfalls can happen at any time. And there is always the remote possibility of an infrequent large volume rockfall. Right. You're still in the wild. Despite all the infrastructure, it's still a park. It's still the wild. That's right. So speaking of that, you know, you also have spent a lot of your time studying the glaciers that are in Yosemite National Park. We'll just start at the top. How are the glaciers in Yosemite? Is it the same tough story that we're hearing in the other parks around the world? Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think what we see happening in Yosemite is very, very similar to, say, the glaciers in Glacier National Park. They've lost about 80% of their surface area since they were first mapped in uh, the late 1880s. 
And at this point, we only have two glaciers, and I'm going to kind of put that word in quotes, two glaciers in Yosemite National Park proper. That would be the Lyle Glacier and the McClure Glacier. Many other glaciers that were documented in the park, including the first glacier ever discovered in the Sierra Nevada by John Muir in 1871, Mm -hmm. those glaciers have literally melted away. They don't exist at all anymore. There's no ice where there once was a glacier. And I put glaciers in quotes there because of the two glaciers, the Lyle and McClure, we discovered a few years ago that the Lyle Glacier is no longer moving. It has thinned to such a point that there's not enough mass for it to actually flow downhill. So as a result, it probably isn't technically a glacier because movement is part of the definition of a glacier. Right. You know, speaking of John Muir, you had an experiment, you replicated an experiment that John Muir himself did when he was mm-hmm. kicking around the park. Do you want to talk about that experiment mm-hmm. on the glaciers and, and what you found? What was the result from there? Yeah. So in the summer of 1872, John Muir and a friend went up to the McClure Glacier and they put stakes in the ice. These were stakes made out of whitebark pine, sort of these big spears of wood that they put into the glacier in different locations and surveyed in their their positions. And then they came back about a month and a half later and surveyed those positions again. And they saw that, in fact, the McClure Glacier was moving downhill, as you'd expect, at a rate of about one inch per day. So that was in 1872. And in 2012, um, that was 140 years later, we did the same thing on those same days in the, the summer of 2012. We put stakes in the ice. They weren't made out of white bark pine. <laughs> they were made out of PVC pipe. But the same basic experiment. And even though the McClure Glacier, when we did our measurements, was probably only about 20% of the size of the McClure Glacier in Muir's time, mm. we got the same result. We found that the glacier was still moving about an inch a day. And that's for different reasons. The glacier is much smaller and much steeper, so a lot of the movement is driven by the very steep slope of the glacier now, as opposed to the thickness of the glacier in Muir's time. But it was nice to know that the McClure Glacier is, as Muir would say, a living glacier. It's still moving. It still deserves to be called a glacier. Do you think it's inevitable at this stage that the glaciers will disappear from the park or... Is the rate of change such that that there's no going back now? Or do you think if we get on top of climate change that there may be a a chance? Or again, is it just too late? I suspect it's probably too late for these glaciers. You know, the downward trend in terms of their size, right, their diminishing size, it's been downhill uh, ever since the glaciers were first surveyed. But the rate of ice loss has really accelerated in the past 20 years. And so one or two years can make a little bit of a difference in terms of how much old ice melts away. But generally speaking, we're looking at the loss of these glaciers in probably 10 to 20 years. Could be even a little less than that for the Lyle Glacier. Mm. So I think even if we were to start making uh, big changes in our emissions of CO2 and other greenhouse gases, uh, I think most scientists would agree that the warming is sort of built into the system already. That you know, in in the next 10 or 20 years, we're not likely to see temperatures start going down. And yeah, I am expecting that these glaciers will disappear in a matter of decades. It's tough to remain hopeful, isn't it? Well, in that regard, yes. But in the larger picture, I think there is reason for optimism. You know, this is, after all, a, a human caused 
problem, and so it ought to be one that humans can solve. One would think. One would think. Along those lines, you know, you, in some regards, literally follow in the footsteps of John Muir. Did you want to talk about the impact he's had on you and your outlook on Yosemite? Because in some regards, not that he was a trained geologist, but in many ways, he was a naturalist in the broadest sense. And it seems to me as though you're really following in those steps as the park geologist at Yosemite National Park. Yeah, I feel a real kinship with John Muir, in part because of his keen analytical mind. I'm not saying that I have that, but this is what I admire about him. He was an excellent observer, and he did a lot of novel things. Like when he put those white bark pine stakes in the McClure Glacier, that might have been the first time that anybody did that in North America to measure the movement of a glacier. It had been done in Europe before, and I think Muir knew that and set out to do that. But it was certainly one of the very first times that anybody had studied a glacier in in North America in that way. So he did a lot of pioneering work, and it was usually based on sound observations and clear thinking. And then, of course, the other thing I like about John Muir is that he was just so enthusiastic about Yosemite, and he was such a great adventurer. And, you know, he would climb up in trees during big windstorms just to feel the storm in the way the tree was shaking back and forth. So I really admire the guy, and I do feel a connection with him, in part by studying the glaciers and doing the same sort of experiment. But I even had the opportunity to go to our park archives and hold one of the original white bark pine stakes that he made to put into the McClure Glacier that was retrieved in the 1930s. And I, you know, I got to hold it in my hand and see the axe marks on it. So, yeah, I really do feel a connection and I feel very lucky to be doing what I'm doing. That's amazing that those stakes survived. That is a very cool thing. Yeah. Well, in some regards also, and I wanted to touch base on this as well, is that you know, following in his footsteps, of course, and you mentioned this, uh, John Muir didn't necessarily follow the same path that everyone else was on, literally. There was some climbing, there was some overland backcountry. And just when we were looking at some of your adventures, it seems as though when you're reaching, let's say, a glacier, or where you're reaching a spot that you want to go and inspect footfalls, you're not taking the path of least resistance. Do you want to talk about some of your day-to-day and some of your ways of conveyance and, and getting to the spots that you need to get to? Sure. Well, in terms of the glacier studies, the Lyle and McClure glaciers are in one of the most remote parts of Yosemite. I mean, they're underneath the highest peaks in the park. Mount Lyle and Mount McClure is also one of the higher peaks in the park. And it's about a 12-mile backpacking trip to get up to the glaciers. You can usually spend a few days out there deep in Yosemite's wilderness, and I love it. (laughs) They're great places to be. Uh, In terms of our explorations and investigations of Yosemite Valley. We do a lot of the work on rock falls using what we call remote sensing techniques. So these are things like lasers that we can use to scan the cliffs and make detailed maps. We have high resolution photographs. We can use thermal images, radar, you know, lots of different techniques to study the cliffs. But we still also get on the cliffs quite a bit. I mean, I, I sometimes will investigate rockfall areas by rappelling down to them or climbing up to them. We've made geologic maps of the cliffs. We made a a geologic map of El Capitan a few years back that involved climbing El Capitan a bunch of times. The lead author probably climbed it more than 20 or 30 times, and I, I did a couple of times. So yeah, it's really neat to be able to integrate 
my study of Yosemite with the physical activity that I really love to do. Right, which goes back to my old professor Tolo saying, this is a great excuse to be outside all the time. So uh, it sounds like a nice office you have when, when uh, I'm sure it is arduous, but when you're rappelling down a cliff face and if it's nice weather out, I'm sure that there are worse places to work in the world. Yes, I agree. We usually like to close with a question for our guests, you know, a, a story maybe, maybe a story about a time where maybe you were out on the job and maybe you were on a cliff face and it just hit you of the place where you work and its specialness. Maybe it was, maybe you already told it and it was holding that stake in the archives. But do you have a story that, uh, and, you know, take a minute if you need to think of one, but a story when you were out and about in the park and it just hit you of the specialness of Yosemite National Park and your appreciation of it. Do you have a story for us? Yeah, well, okay, here's one example. A few years ago, some colleagues and I did a study of Half Dome. And we were trying to at least get a little closer to that answer of why does Half Dome look the way it does? You know, how did it become Half a Dome? And as I alluded to earlier, it's a complicated story. So we were trying to understand that a little better. And at one point, we were up on the summit of Half Dome, kind of like walking down the huge sweep of granite on the west side. And we had gone from kind of studying just the micro texture of the granite and the rock. And I just kind of looked up and saw this big curve of granite leading down into Yosemite Valley. And then from there, just dome upon cliff upon dome of granite as far as we could see. And I just thought, oh my gosh, there is so much to study here. I could probably spend 10 lifetimes doing what I'm doing and only scratch the surface. And uh, so that was a really great moment for me. Yeah. Anytime, I think, when you're humbled by the scale of geologic time and just how uh, with that thin foam floating on top of this vast ocean of time, I think, yeah, I agree with you. And you, unlike other people, you get to see it uh, almost daily. You get to really experience that almost daily. And uh, again, Professor Tolo was right. So not a bad office that you have yeah. there, Greg. That's uh, it's fantastic. So again, thank you, uh, Ranger Greg Stock, Park Geologist, Yosemite National Park. Thank you very much. And we really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much to Greg Stock. Now I speak with Dave Bengston from Yosemite's Mountaineering School. I'm here today with Dave Bengston. He is the director of Yosemite's Mountaineering School, which is a part of Yosemite Hospitality, the official concessionaire of Yosemite National Park. Dave has been a guide since 1985, and he has extensive skiing and alpine climbing experience, including more than 48 ascents of El Capitan. Hi, Dave. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Daniel. So, Dave, when people think of Yosemite, they automatically think of climbing and think of El Capitan and Half Tome and things like that. Before we get into talking about all that it offers, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and some of the great climbs or anything that you want to share of your experience? Well... I've been a, a climber here in Yosemite since 1974. I came here as a very young kid. I didn't really know that there was such a thing as, as climbing, so I'm one of the lucky people that found my love of climbing here. As a climber, this is one of the best places on the planet. Lots of folks from all over the world dream of climbing in a place like Yosemite. They see pictures of the huge walls and, and the waterfalls and and they just dream of coming here to do that climbing. 
We see that at the mountaineering school all the time. People call us wanting to climb in Yosemite. And one of the best things about climbing in Yosemite is that it's really accessible. Huge cliffs, good weather, really high quality rock. And there's a fairly large diversity of climbing available here. So I always tell folks that not everybody wants to be a climber, but there's climbing for everyone here in Yosemite. Whether you're a hot shot, you know, breaking records or whether you're more interested in easy trails. That's great. So accessible for families and kids as well as people who are seasoned climbers. Yeah, absolutely. When I say accessible, I mean that the road is pretty close to the cliffs for the most part. We do have high country climbing, which requires big hikes and backpacking or mountaineering type expeditions, but there's also climbing that's very accessible. What is the season for climbing? Well, you can climb here all year round, but Yosemite really is a place with all four seasons. There's wonderful aspects to each season. People ask me all the time, what's the best time to come here? Um, And golly, it's really great in each of the seasons. In the spring, the trees are green and the new foliage is coming out. The waterfalls are really big. It's new and fresh and coming alive. The spring in Yosemite Valley is a great explosion of passion for rock climbing. In the summer, the days are long and the warm days allow us to get up into the high country. We can get up into Tuolumne Meadows, which is expansive granite domes and just wonderful scenery. And, and it's cooler in the summer up there in the high country. Then the fall comes and we start getting thunder showers in the high country, but the leaves start turning down in the valley and, and Yosemite Valley comes alive with good temperatures and good consistent weather. So a lot of climbers think that this time of year right now, the, the fall is sort of the ideal climbing time for Yosemite Valley. Then as the season changes and winter approaches, we start getting snow in the high country and skiing is possible, but we still can climb in the valley sometimes on the south-facing sides of the cliffs, even though there might be three, four, five feet of snow in Yosemite Valley, often the sunny side of the valley is accessible for climbing, but it's less dependable. Sometimes the waterfalls here freeze and we can get out ice climbing on some of these huge waterfalls, or we can ski the chutes or cross-country ski. The mountaineering school officially becomes a Nordic ski school in the winter up at the Badger Pass ski area. And we have many miles of groomed cross-country skiing and we teach skiing. Of course, we come back to the spring and everybody's ready to break out of the snow and, and start climbing the big cliffs. Nice. I would love to come in the winter and try skiing, especially cross-country skiing. That sounds amazing. Are there other places in the country or the world that are comparable to Yosemite or Yosemite is just unique? And if you want those conditions and those views and those walls, you need to come to Yosemite. Well, there's no doubt that Yosemite is unique. Most folks that have seen photographs of Yosemite understand that right away. Most climbers love to experience new places. And so as a climber, I'm very interested in going elsewhere and seeing the Alps or the Verdun in France. I know there's wonderful climbing areas and cliffs all over the world, but Yosemite is definitely 
a place that all climbers dream about coming to to climb. And we see that at the Mountaineering School. This year we had people literally from all over the world. Every country you can name really calls us up. And often they want to know if we have a guide that speaks Russian or French. Yesterday we had a call from somebody who needed a Portuguese-speaking guide. But the climbing language is fairly universal. And even though we don't have a Portuguese-speaking guide, we typically climb with folks that don't speak English as well as they want to, and we get along just fine. What is some of that language? Let's go over some terms that people should know for newbies who may be interested. Well, we can do a lot with signals that are not necessarily spoken. Sometimes you're quite a long distance away and there's a lot of wind. You can't hear very well anyway. But to answer your question, we typically start our climbing sequence with a visual inspection of each other's setup. And then we initiate the climbing sequence with an on belay. So the belayer would tell the climber that he's ready to secure that person. Climbing would be what the climber says, and then climb would be the sort of final contract that allows the climber to go. And up rope and slack, uh, another important one is rock. If something's falling, you would yell that. For a new group, a newbie, what would they be doing if it's their first endeavor or maybe it's their first endeavor outside? Maybe they've climbed inside. Oh, yeah. You bring up inside climbing, and it's it's so popular now. It's really wonderful. Most of our guests come to us with some climbing experience. I, as you know, taught climbing in the Yosemite Mountaineering School 25 years ago, and at that time, there weren't climbing gyms, so all of our climbers came from really no experience and took our beginning classes, and we, in the course of a few classes brought them from knowing really nothing about climbing up to being fairly competent on their own right. Nowadays, everybody has climbed in indoors, um, whether it's a little wall at a fair or at a special outing or whether they're avid climbers indoors. I mean, that climbing indoors is really fun. It's addictive and it's great for your fitness. So it's super popular now. We get mostly people that have done some of that and so a lot of times we don't have to teach some of those basic signals or how to tie the rope to your harness. We typically start with uh, some refreshers and then we set up climbs and, and work on skills for climbing. Climbing outside is a little different than indoor climbing in that it's natural and there aren't ropes or equipment typically left out, especially in a national park like this. It's, it's just natural rock. And so it's incumbent upon us to go out and rig the climbing site so that it's safe and ready to be used. And then we also need to dismantle it when we go. Um, and ideally, we don't leave a trace. I mean, our goal is to come here, enjoy the, the national park and the natural rocks and whatnot, and then go away and, and have not changed it in any way. So that the next person can have that same sense of adventure and, and that new feeling for the climbing site. For people who, who do have experience indoors but not outdoors, is there anything that hinders? Do they have more confidence than they should because it's different or 
is there any issue that arises with people who have only indoor experience but not outdoor experience? Sure, yeah. I wouldn't say that it's negative at all. There are some differences. When you climb outside at different areas a lot, you notice quite a range of difficulties. So climbing ratings don't mean quite the same as they do if you climb in one location. If you climb in one location, like if you go to one of the climbing gyms, you'll get used to a certain rating of climbing route and you'll identify that you can climb at a certain level. But when you go to different climbing areas, you notice a pretty big difference between those areas. Another difference in the climbing between outside climbing and and the gym climbing is the fact that the rock isn't set up. So here in Yosemite, we have a lot of crack climbing, um, and there aren't really very many anchors. So you need to rely on your ability to build anchors with artificial equipment or with natural uh, anchors, and then utilize those to protect you while you're climbing. Whereas in the climbing gym, all the anchors are fixed, and often ropes are hanging on the routes already. It's it's pre-rigged for you, so it's a little bit easier to go in and spend a half an hour or an hour and get a really good workout in the climbing gym, whereas outside, you might sometimes spend that much time just rigging up your, your climb so that you can get that workout. So it takes a little more knowledge maybe to climb outside here in Yosemite especially. And it also takes a little bit more time. There are areas in Yosemite and outside of Yosemite that are set up a lot more like climbing gyms, and that's called sport climbing. And sport climbing is super fun. And part of what makes it fun is that it's easy to go to a sport climbing area and spend a shorter amount of time and get a good workout because things are pretty rigged up for you there. In Yosemite, we have a lot more adventure in our climbing in that you might follow a crack system and have to have the right equipment and the right skills in order to accomplish that that climb. People ask me in the past, you know, what's the difference between climbing a, a big wall and, and climbing a maybe a hard free climb uh, that's shorter? And the difference really is the effort. You know, if you go out overnight for multiple days, you have to bring the right equipment. It takes multiple days of intense effort. And because of that, you get a little more gratification in the end. Hard, shorter routes give you more gratification typically than easier, shorter routes. But that depends on how you're wired. I mean, some people like easier climbing and they just like the views and the stressless adventure of an easier climb that gets them up above the tree line. And other people like to really challenge themselves. And that's what I meant by there's climbing for everybody. Can you describe some locations for where you would take a group climbing at the different levels? Where would you take them for beginners, intermediates, and advanced? Yeah. One of my favorite places to do a beginner class is up in Tuolumne Meadows. We have a place called Puppy Dome up there, which is just a really scenic place. It's it's only about 100 yards from the parking area, um, so it's not a huge hike in. We can get in there pretty quickly. Tuolumne Meadows smells wonderful. It's open. From Puppy Dome, you can see Cathedral Peak in the background, and there's there's glacier polish on the granite up there. 
it's just a special, beautiful place. And there's enough room to spread out and, and do some belaying and not tying practice in a really scenic place. And then there's a great easy slope to do your first rappel on and do some easier climbing and really kind of gather your, your confidence for rock climbing. And so that's, that's probably my favorite place. We also teach beginners down in Yosemite Valley at uh, Swan's Lab, and that's another great place. Where is that near? Swan's Lab is near uh, Yosemite Falls, kind of near the lower falls. You know, intermediate folks, boy, there's just any number of places. So we usually start out with a little discussion about their interests and objectives when we're on a guided outing. And some people are nervous about multi-pitch climbing, but a lot of what we do is multi-pitch climbing. So a pitch is a rope length of climbing. And if you're going to do something like El Capitan, you'd have 30 different rope lengths um, that you do one at a time. And in between each pitch, you set a blay anchor and you, you gather up the team. So you attack the cliff one pitch at a time. Here in Yosemite, the cliffs are pretty big. So it's common that we do multi-pitch climbing. And sometimes for folks in, that are used to indoor climbing, that's a whole new experience. And I'm sure it's quite thrilling. We have a couple of places that we go to for easier multi-pitch climbing. One of the places is Manure Pile Buttress, um, which is down by El Capitan. That's about 600 feet or so, so six pitches of climbing. and um, It's quite nice because there's good belay ledges between each pitch. We also love to go up into Tuolumne Meadows for for easier multi-pitch climbing. And then advanced folks, we... We go all over the place. We guided El Capitan last week. I have a guide right now on the rostrum on an overnighter. And for those multi-pitch, do you take the, once they finish that section, do you remove it or does that stay and you remove it on your way down? Oh, right. Well, so the way it works is you start with your rope and your protection and usually you're in a party of two or three. Um, and you would have one rope in between each person. So if you and I climbed, it would be you and I with the rope tied to each of us. I might go first and you would blame me. You'd hold the rope while I climbed up. And I would put in gear that's uh, easily removable, but that would secure me in case I fell along the way. And I would pass my rope through that. That would be the point that would hold me up there. Now, of course, as I climb above that, I'm going to fall not only to that piece, but the rope would allow me to slip a little bit past that. So I'm going to put in more gear as I'm nervous about the difficulty of the climbing. Once I get near the end of the rope, I start looking for a good place to pull over and I will set an anchor, which is not one piece of gear. It's typically three or more uh, good pieces of gear tied together into a system that is unquestionably solid. And then I would tie my rope to that that anchor, and I would turn around and belay you up. So I would hold your rope as you climbed, pulling it in as you go up, and as you climb, you would remove that equipment. And in that way, we would climb up, putting the gear in to protect us as we need it, and then taking it out as we depart that, that area. So we might go up three or four pitches until we reach the top. As I put it in, you take it out, and... At that point, we can finish up and all the gear is with us. And if we can walk down, we will. If we need to repel, repelling, of course, requires leaving an anchor. 
and it's common that we would repel on uh, something that's fixed up there like a tree or a fixed anchor because you put the rope through it in half, you repel down the doubled rope, and then when you get to the end of that repel, you pull the rope through and the rope falls down to you. And so, Al Cap, you have to repel down. No, it's it's most common on El Capitan that people walk off on the side. There's oh, a okay. Descent, there's a descent route called the East Ledges on the very eastern side of El Capitan. So you walk quite a ways down, and then you do some short repels in order to get down to the ground. If you got stuck partway up, then, of course, you'd have to repel down. When selecting the sites, especially for more advanced climbers, you did mention there's some discussion beforehand. Is that before the day of the climb to decide where the location will be? How does that work? Oh, yeah. So at the Mountaineering School, we have a small screening process that goes on when you book a reservation. And that may include determining which route to do. But often we don't need to select a route at that time. Because unless there's something that the the guest really wants to do, the guides are best suited to determine what the climber wants to do and choose a route together based on current conditions. Can you just give a quick overview of the offerings? Yeah, so the main classes that we have are beginning class, which is welcome to the rock. Our second class is crack climbing. And in crack climbing class, we introduce, we review the basic belaying skills and knot tying skills, and we introduce simple anchors. We do a lot of climbing and rappelling. Our third class is anchoring, and that's a class that's taken by somebody who wants to start climbing outside on their own. We need to use anchors here in Yosemite because there aren't very many fixed anchors, so we need to know how to use cams and chocks in order to build secure points so that we can do multi-pitch climbing or top roping. And that anchoring class is where we do a comprehensive study of that. We have a leading and multi-pitch climbing class. People in the gyms often learn to lead really quickly. It really involves fixed anchors on a route that's set up. And so the most that you might need besides a rope would be quick draws, which are two carabiners with a short sling. So if you lead, you climb up, you put a quick draw on the bolt, and then you put your rope through it and continue until you're up there. But here in Yosemite, leading doesn't very often include bolted routes. The routes tend to be non-equipped, so you need the skills of anchoring and whatnot in order to rig rig the, the rope for a lead and multi-pitch climbing, of course. We also have a self-rescue and aid climbing class. Self-rescue is important if something goes wrong up there. Um, and all of a sudden, you maybe it starts raining in the middle of a climb, or maybe your partner gets hurt. Those are skills that you might need in the case of something funny happening. And natural climbing, something funny happens quite often. Those old climbers know what I'm talking about. They've all had something funny happen on their climbs. We also do private classes. So private are going to be really just uh, determined by your interests and objectives. Again, we would, the guide would start out with a little interview and discussion about kind of what, what it is you wanted to learn. So any of those classes can be done in a private setting. 
All of our classes include climbing and curriculum. And any tips for families? Yeah. So so people always ask how young. And, you know, the funny answer to that is it really just depends on the individual. We've had very, very young kids do extremely well. You know, three, four years old out there rock climbing away. We've also had uh, older kids that are just terrified and, and really just are not happy about it. We don't twist anybody's arm. We just help them enjoy it. As far as our group classes, we require that they're 10 or 11 with an adult and 12 and up can go into the classes. If they're younger than 10, we need them to be in a private class. And boy, sometimes the youngest ones are the most studious and have the most fun and are really just best climbers. Right. I can speak to that from experience. We've taken our children to a climbing gym just twice, but my youngest, she's now seven, and she is definitely the expert of our of our <laughs> family. <laughs> she's so good. <laughs> I believe there's a rise in female climbers. Can you comment on that? Yeah, we have a, a couple of female guides at our school. They're very popular with female clients, so it's really great to see that we can accommodate that. Do you have any advice or tips for climbers at any level wanting to plan a trip to Yosemite that includes climbing? Plan ahead a little bit. This year, we had a a boom in business. If you'd like to climb with the mountaineering school, give us a little bit of lead time. If, If you do that, we'll be able to help you out. Just like the reservations for the hotels here, you want to do that in advance or else you might not get what you want. How far in advance typically in peak season? Oh, for the mountaineering school, if we have a month's notice, it's pretty much no problem to to help folks get private. Oh, that's great. Okay. It's not like booking your lodging a year in advance or whatever. No, no, not it's not yet at that at that point, thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> the movie Free Solo Climbing. Do you want to comment on that? Is that something that people do? Oh, well, free solo is a, a unique thing. I guess I don't have much in the way of comments other than, wow, that, that's pretty amazing stuff. I mean, that's that's really hard climbing, <laughs> you know, with quite a lot to, to lose. So uh, right. hats off to that. That's just, it's unbelievable. Yeah, not anything I would ever strive to do. <laughs> just not No, I mean, if it looks easy to you guys, there's something wrong. <laughs> right. <laughs> But um, I guess the the thing I'd really want to comment is that I love to see the popularity of climbing. Climbing is just a wonderful sport that's kept me healthy my entire life. And I love to see it getting the attention that it deserves. I mean, it's really a, a healthy lifestyle. It's a great way to get out and see Yosemite. In my 40 years of climbing here in Yosemite, I've seen so many wonderful places that you just can't get to unless you unless you're a climber. Yeah, I bet that's amazing. I keep having this conversation with people, how Yosemite, we got a nice overview of Yosemite, had an amazing trip, but I loved it so much and there was so much that I didn't get to do. And so I definitely expect to go back in the future at some point. But I always say, you know, people can be their whole lives and still not see everything. You've been there a long time and and all different elevations and climbing. Do you feel like you've seen it all or there's still so much more for you to discover? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a number of places that I still would love to go to. 
and they're on the next trip. You know what I mean? Yep. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Dave. This was very interesting and informative. We always ask our guests if they can share an experience, something where you kind of pinch yourself and say, wow, I'm really lucky to be here. Is there a special moment that you can share? I climbed Mount Kness with a group from Mountain Hardware, a bunch of guys that are on the design team for, for Mountain Hardware back, oh, this must have been oh, 15 years ago. And we did a backpacking trip out to Young Lakes. Then on the second day, we hiked up, basically just hiked up Mount Kness, which is on the crest of the Sierra, a little bit north of Tioga Pass. Um, and it wasn't a difficult climb, but it was just a beautiful, wonderful day. And we just had a ton of fun together. We took some good photos at the top of, of the gang and the summit of Mount Kness on a clear day, you know, looking back towards Tuolumne Meadows. And, you know, I don't know whether it's the photographs that I took that day that I see once in a while or, or what, but it was just a, a great experience. You know, and that kind of epitomizes my interest of, of climbing in Yosemite is just being at the top of the world, sort of, and in a beautiful remote place like that with good folks. And Well, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. So I'm speaking with Dave Bankston from the Mountaineering School. Thanks for taking the time, Dave. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. You may find links to resources mentioned in this episode in the show notes on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. Send us your stories, tips, or comments to hello at everybodysnps.com. You can write us a message or even record a short voice memo on your phone and then attach it to the email. You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Again, the email is hello at everybodysnps.com. Subscribe for free to Everybody's National Parks on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, become a patron. Just click on support our show on our homepage, everybodysnationalparks.com. We also appreciate if you write a review, give us a five-star rating, and tell your friends. This helps more people find us. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.